Welcome to the podcast of Community Baptist Church of Harrison, Ohio. I'm Pastor Doug Wallen, and I want to thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Community Baptist Church, I'd like to invite you to visit us on the web at cbcharrison.com. Thanks for listening. So, I'm going to start out, I just want to say a word, and uh, maybe have you guys think of just, just what are some first things that come to your mind when I say the word idolatry? Thinking. So if, you, if you're like most people, maybe some of the first things you thought of were mm, other cultures, irrelevant, statues, temples, kind of physical objects. Uh, then maybe, maybe if you think a little more religiously, you thought uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddha, statues of that. Maybe you even thought uh, Moses and, and the golden calf and Israel. And my, my goal for this morning is that moving forward, every time you hear the word idolatry, that you would think, man, that is the world's greatest problem. Even that you would think, that is my greatest problem. Like that, that is what I struggle with. So before we jump in, it's important to know what I mean by idolatry. An idol, the way I define it, is uh, it is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. So that's a pretty sweeping definition. That could be anything. Idolatry is kind of somewhat of a buzzword in Old Testament literature. And I think because we so often we associate it with physical objects and statues that we kind of miss the thrust of the teaching in Scripture about uh, what an idol is, and especially what an idol of the heart is, which is just uh, something that, that motivates us, something that we've attached our lives and our meaning to that brings us joy and fulfillment, and we revolve our lives around it. So this morning, I was, I'm wanting to pull a lot from the Old Testament uh, because this topic of idolatry is it's something that Jesus and the New Testament authors, they just kind of assumed that people knew that this was a major issue. And it seems to me that an understanding of the Old Testament teachings on sin and idolatry and and what those things are, that is crucial to understanding our natural tendency as humans towards pride and towards self-sufficiency. And my prayer is that through God's word this morning that we will see the truth of, of who we are by nature, the truth of our idolatry and the destruction that that brings but that we will also see the possibility of freedom and hope in Jesus. So I'm going to pray for our time in the Word, and then we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 14. If you want to open up there, you can. We'll also have it up on the screen. So, Father, I do just thank you for your Word, for how it's rich and it's robust and it's relevant, even words written to an ancient culture in an ancient language with things that are sometimes so foreign to us, how you can still teach us through those. And God, we see that we are not much different than those ancient Israelites that claimed to follow you, but some of them did not know you. God, I just, I pray that we would be genuine, that I would be genuine, that you would humble us and that we would truly know you, truly love you, that you would change our hearts and transform us every day. And that we would see the severity of this, this fight against idols of the heart, even today and even in our culture. And that we would turn to you. 
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Ezekiel 14, a little, little bit of context. Uh, in chapter 13, God spoke to Ezekiel about uh, the danger of false prophets. See, there were people in, in this time that were basically going around saying, hey, God gave me this vision. God's saying there's peace and security, and, and God, I'm, I'm seeing all these things and receiving words from him. But then God comes and he says, there is no peace. Like, they're lying. They're just saying that they're hearing things from me, but they're not. So then you get to chapter 14, and, and God kind of shifts, and he's showing that not only is he against the people who are outwardly dishonoring him, the false prophets who are outwardly um, lying, but he's also against the people who are inwardly holding on to allegiance to things that are other than God. And so they're, they're worshiping things other than God. So Ezekiel 14, 1 says, Certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man, which Son of Man is just this title used for Ezekiel all, all throughout the book. It says, These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. All right, so certain elders, they come to uh, Ezekiel, and the elders at this point in history were, were something like uh, government officials. Likely they were coming to Ezekiel with uh, uh, questionable motives, probably to, to get guidance from God on national affairs or problems in their country. And, and I just don't want you to miss the point that these people, the elders, they were leaders. They were leaders of their community, leaders of God's people. And so a lot of responsibility was on them to be faithful, to be genuine. And clearly we see they're not living up to that calling. God says of them, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And that's kind of a weird, there's a lot of imagery here going on. So first you see idols were in their hearts, stumbling blocks before their faces. And that from what I was reading, that's kind of this idiom that was representing, like, if something was set before your face, it's like, that's what I'm focused on. This is, it's this intentionally fixed state of mind. Uh, so nowadays, you know, you could say, like, the idols were in their minds and the idols were on their hearts. Uh, and, and in Hebrew thought, the heart, it was not just this organ right here that, that pumps blood. The heart was something like the seat and the origin of all emotions, of all thoughts and behaviors and desires and will of, of a human. It's probably closer to how we view the brain today in our society. In Proverbs 4, it says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So in, in biblical Hebrew thought, the metaphorical heart was the central command center for all of life. Behavior flowed from the heart. And I have a short video that really helps explain this concept since it's sometimes so foreign to us. So here, here it is. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. 
Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart, or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life, and there's more. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick, who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Pretty cool. Um, the Bible Project, these videos are awesome. They're all on YouTube. They're all free. Tons of concepts that they just show very, very well, illustrate them. Um, so, you know, we saw there in Jeremiah, uh, the heart, it's, it's something that is not just neutral. All right? It's not something that is just determined by your own uh, choice that you can just, oh, I'm going to be good. It's not like some people are born with good hearts, other people are born with bad hearts. And I want you to see that. I want to read this whole passage in, in Jeremiah. Uh, it says, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt lamb where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. 
They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yet I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So according to Jeremiah, the biblical picture of the heart, the wills, motives, emotions, choices, thoughts, all desires, all these things we saw in that video, is one, the heart is deceitful above all things. Two, it's desperately sick. In, in the Hebrew word, it was often translated incurable. Like the NIV, it says um, beyond cure. It's something that, that you, can't just, you can't just fix it. And three, it's next to impossible to understand. And it intrigues me that the biblical case study, kind of exhibit A, if you will, of why this is true of the heart in Jeremiah 17 is, is the person filled with pride. The one who, like verse 5 says in Jeremiah 17, that they trust in humanity. They hope in their own strength, their own wisdom, their own abilities. Ultimately, it's the one whose heart is far from the Lord. I just think that's intriguing. So if that's the condition of humanity, desperately corrupt, beyond understanding, and incurable, where does that leave us? What hope does that give us? Because the biblical dilemma to all this is that one, we are desperately broken, and that we cannot change ourselves by our own power. We don't have the ability to cure ourselves. Earlier in Jeremiah, God's talking about his own people. And he says in Jeremiah 13, he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Obviously, the answer is no, they can't just do that. Then he goes on to say, then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So he's saying, look, you can change your fundamental nature from idolatrous and evil to good and faithful about just as effectively as someone can just change their own skin color or, or change you know, how they look. And, and he's talking to people that claim to follow him and worship him. And it paints this pretty bleak picture, but it's this picture all throughout the Old Testament that causes the entire Old Testament literature to just scream out, we need rescued. We need a savior, a redeemer. We need someone to change our hearts. And it's cool to me that even though Ezekiel gives just this miserable picture of idolatrous leaders of God's people, and even though Jeremiah ascribes to all human hearts this incurable defect, that both of those prophets also present some of the greatest passages of hope that are found in the entire Old Testament. And we're going to look at them, but before we get there, I, I want to be just a little more depressing with the reality of what, what our hearts lead to. So let's check out the rest of Ezekiel 14. So, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken idols in their hearts, set stumbling blocks before their faces. And then God says, should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, anyone of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. That's hard-hitting. God says that the result of their idolatry is that they're estranged from him. And in particular, he says, I'm not even going to allow them to consult me. It's like, I'm not going to listen to them. And that's, surprisingly, it's really a pretty common response from God to, to people that are filled with pride and filled with idolatry in the entire Bible. 
And what's fascinating is I was, I was studying this, and I found that there's another time when the vocabulary of estrangement is paired up with the concept of God ignoring prayer. And it happens again in Isaiah chapter 1. And Isaiah 1 says, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is God talking now. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's residence, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So they're estranged because they've forsaken the Lord. And if you keep reading in this chapter and throughout the rest of Isaiah, you see that uh, they're also separated because these people were living hypocritical lives. They were making a mockery of God and they were oppressing the poor and they were not living up to the justice that God called them to. And as a result of that, you get to verse 15 and God says to these same people, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. And that's not, that's not the only reference. Isaiah 58, same thing happens. They're ignoring the poor, oppressing them. God says, I'm not going to listen to you. Even if you fast, even if you pray, even if you sacrifice, I'm not going to listen to you because you're not, you're being hypocritical. You're not actually following me. You get, even in the New Testament, and Peter says specifically to men, like men, husbands, if you are not honoring your wives, if you're not treating them as, as a joint heir in Christ, as honorable, then your prayers will be hindered. It flat out says that. So this is all throughout scripture, and that is what is at stake. Our idolatrous hearts separate us from God. And I just, I was thinking this morning, like Romans 1 and 2 and 3, like they go to great length to show that this is true. And Romans, Romans 1, I don't have it up on the PowerPoint, but Romans 1, starting in verse 21, it says, for although they, and they is, is talking here about all the non-Jewish people, but it's really, it's, to everyone. Although everyone knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became foolish in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Okay, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And then this part says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So they exchanged the glory of God in, in his power and his image for idols for images. And I started looking into this because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's early, like second century BC, there was a translation of the Old Testament that was done in Greek. And so we can learn a lot of the Greek words based on what Hebrew words they translated, and you can compare them. And it's really cool because the word for images, where, where the glory of God was exchanged for images, is the same word used back in Genesis in the Greek translation where it says that God made us in his image. It's fascinating because kings in the ancient Near East context that that was written in, kings would set up statues that they called images of themselves all throughout their land. And these statues were meant to represent, hey, that king's authority has, has uh, expanded to this area. If you, like, if you walked out here and you saw a statue of Kim Jong-un, you'd be like, oh, crap, like, that's not good. That means he's got some kind of power or authority here. And it's the same concept that 
And the kings would put up these images and these statues to show that their authority has expanded, that they are the king, that they are in control. And so when God makes us in his image and he puts us on the earth, it's this picture that says, my authority is on the earth. This is mine. And then he, he calls us to represent him or to image him and say, yes, that's God is the king. We're following him. He has all the authority, all the honor. All right, and so the picture is, if Romans is trying to play off that, which I'm not sure if it is, it might be, though. The picture is that we've exchanged that calling, you know, where we should be representing God and, and giving him the honor and the glory as our king. And we've exchanged that to where now we are imaging sin. We're imaging brokenness. and We're, we're reflecting the darkness that has invaded this world. And that, that's so many of us. We're not truly honoring God as king. We're just living for our own thing, whatever that may be. People by nature are worshipers. Every one of us in here, we were made, created to worship. So the question is not, are you worshiping? It's, it's what or who are you worshiping? What have you given your life to? And the whole testimony of the Bible is that we naturally tend to either worship ourselves or someone or something else rather than worshiping God and living for him. Richard Keyes, this is a long quote, said the natural human response to the true God after the fall is rebellion and avoidance. Sin predisposes us to want to be independent of God, to be laws unto ourselves, to be autonomous, so that we can do what we want without bowing to his authority. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world if we do not want to face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness. Rather than look to the creator and have to deal with his lordship, we orient ourselves towards creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in our desired directions. However, since we were made to relate to God but do not want to face him, we forever inflate things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. I love that. So for the people living in that ancient Near Eastern context, Oftentimes, the idols that they were worshiping, they were physical objects. You know, and you, you think all of a sudden, like, physical representation of different gods in the Old Testament. Well, that was an image meant to show that God's authority. And then you think when the true God comes, and he says, you can't. You can't do that. I'm going to show you how much bigger I am than them. I'm, not, I'm a real person. I'm not a statue. Like, they have no power. They have no authority. I have it all. And, and so... You see those physical representations often in the Old Testament, but you see also in Ezekiel that idols made their way into people's hearts so that their thoughts were about them, their joy was found in them. And even though we don't see many physical idols here in this culture, in the United States, we do see a ton of things that battle for our attention, our affections, our minds. I spent just like three minutes jotting some things down, and I, I thought comfort, money, power, Success, status, achievements, knowledge, self-sufficiency, approval, food, work, children, family, performance, good health, respect, just any of those. And you could, you could list more. Any of those could be things that we are living for, things that uh, are motivating us and bringing us joy and giving us meaning when they're not meant to do that. And where it gets especially tricky is that our idols, they blind us and they bind us. They bind us to their lure and their power, and we feel like, like, I have to live for this or else I'm not worth anything. 
They bind us, but they also often blind us of their presence. So many people may have no idea that their entire lives are devoted to uh, their own performance and the approval of others. And if they don't have the approval of others, if they don't have other people's praise, then they just feel like, oh, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not worth anything. It's hard for us to see what we were living for in any given moment. So in your bulletin, well, you don't have a bulletin. I put that in there. <laughs> uh, I, I passed out that paper, this exercise that, that hopefully will help you start to uh, learn and identify what idols might be in your life. And I, I guarantee there are probably many. I know there are in mine. John Calvin said that the heart is a factory of idols. It's like, like we're pumping them out just as fast as we can recognize them. We are just so prone to chasing after things that aren't God. But as you do this exercise, I want you to keep in mind that if God has saved you, if you are his child, you are not doing this introspective look alone. It's not like we're going to sit there and beat ourselves up and be like, oh, I, I'm failing here and here and here, and I knew I wasn't worth it after all. I knew, I knew God didn't love me because I see all these things. It's, we're not doing that. You're doing this in the presence of your Savior. And as much as Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk about the incurable heart, they also paint this beautiful picture of a coming Savior, a coming hope that's going to cure the heart. And I want to look at just one passage in Ezekiel 36. You probably know this. You might have heard it before. But keep in mind the context of, of the idolatry and the rebellion of all of humanity and our need for a new heart. And so keep that in mind. We'll read. Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. All right, so this is God talking now. God says, it is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your impurities, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And then this part, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So this new day is promised all the way back. The prophets, this new day is promised where people's hearts would be cured, where God would put his spirit in them. In the New Testament, I wish we had time to dive into what the New Testament teaches. Read the book Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. All are talking about this. The New Testament teaches that Jesus himself is the administrator of this, this new covenant, this new era of how God deals with his people. And by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he sets in motion this new time in history where no longer are animals sacrificed. We don't have to follow this law, these rules. It's not like we're trying to earn anything. But by the sacrifice of his son, God sets his people free to be able to follow him. And he puts his spirit within us so that we can obey him and so that we can love him. And so our, our hope is found in Christ. We're free to live for him. He sets us free. We're no longer slaves to the approval of others, 
to our own rigid demands that we put on ourselves, we're given this opportunity to respond with faith in Christ, respond with faith in what he's done for us, and that sets us free. We're set free by God, and we're called children of God. So as you go through this exercise and read these questions, just keep that in mind. If, if you've trusted in Christ to save you, then God says you are his, and you're not doing this alone. And you're not alone in, in fighting this idolatry that's still left over on this side of eternity. In the battle, it's very real. We spend our lives perfecting and protecting these idols. We, we latch onto something and we want to live for it and we justify it and we perfect it and we don't let anyone else touch it. We put subtle little demands on everyone else around us so that if, if they're not helping us achieve what we're living for, then, then they're evil and we're not going to associate with them. It can be so hard to change those ways of thinking. First Peter 2 says, Dear friends, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So if, if in the Old Testament, if idolatry was the buzzword that meant living for something other than God, the New Testament equivalent would be this word passions, or you see sometimes passions of the flesh. Passions, if you read Greco-Roman literature, it was so often a vice, and it, it was something that like controlled someone or ruled them. That was what they lived for. And so it's serious stuff. It says idolatry, these passions, these ruling desires in our heart, they wage war against our soul. It's like what you're living for, every moment of every day, it matters. All right, so the last thing in your bullet, I keep saying bulletin. Uh, you'll see a question on the top of your little handout. You'll see a question. You're going to try to answer this. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if, and then there's, there's a list of things. And if you can read any of those and be like, yeah, that kind of that sounds like me. Like, I, I don't value myself unless I'm getting the approval of others. Then in parentheses, it has just maybe something that, that you might struggle with. Um, so take, take a few minutes and start to read through those and pray through those. Just start to ask God to reveal areas in your life where you're not submitted to him, where you're living for your own desires or your, you know, someone else's approval. And trust in Christ that he's done everything necessary to change you. That day by day, he can transform you and he can cause you to be more like him and to follow him. Um, so go ahead and take five minutes. Pray. If you, if you want to come up here and pray, you are more than welcome to do that. And so.